Hey, Sweat Elite Podcast listeners, it's Matt here, your host. Thank you for tuning into this Sweat Elite Podcast episode. Before I introduce this week's guest or interviewee, once again, I'd like to say that from the team here at Sweat Elite, our thoughts go out to everyone that is currently affected by this COVID-19 pandemic and the restrictions placed upon us. Um, I'm aware that more or less everyone around the world is affected in one way or another, but there are some countries at the moment that have quite tight rules and restrictions put in place. For example, I know that in Ireland and some other countries in Europe, people are unable to train further than a certain distance away from their their house and only for a very short period of time. Um, and of course, you put running aside, plenty of people have, for example, lost their job or, or they're forced to self-isolate for a very long period of time. And yeah, our thoughts do go out to all of you. And we hope, like you, I'm sure that this situation improves um, sooner rather than later, and things can go back to normal. At least here in Australia, where this intro is being recorded, we are still able to run outside, uh, but we are we have been asked to stick to um, just groups of two. So you can only run with one other person, and you have to keep your distance of 1.5 meters from them. But there is no group training going on, and also many facilities, parks is, uh, have also been closed. Um, I feel like our restrictions are uh, not too tight compared to many other places that we've learned about, but our feelings and thoughts do go out to all of you. And as I've said, we hope the situation improves uh, very soon. But this week's guest interviewee is Tice Nahurst, who's Denmark's fastest marathon runner currently. Um, Tice was actually interviewed on the podcast um, in the middle of February, and we published a podcast episode just before in mid to late February, just before he ran the Seville Marathon, where his goal before the marathon was to run the Olympic qualifying time of 2.11.30, and at the time he had a personal best of 2.14.18. So it was going to be a big a big step for Tice to, to, to take, but he, he did run the qualifying time at the Seville Marathon. He even broke 2.11. He ran 2.10.57. I was very happy for him, and it was great to have him back on the podcast to give us a rundown of how the race went to talk a little bit more about his last few days of training leading into the marathon and to answer some questions from podcast listeners. For example, uh, in addition to his race report, he talks about in this podcast episode, some injury prevention exercises. He talks about strength training, his opinions on strength training, um, some of the minor changes that he made in training leading into this Seville marathon. He talks about supplements and vitamins, what his opinion on them are, and if he takes any supplements or vitamins, fasting in general, and also depleting carb stores uh, during training runs. And he gives some excellent beginner's advice to to marathon runners that may be just starting out. And uh, one of the questions was, what are the three most important aspects to marathon training? Very simple question, but Tice answers it very well. Tice, uh, as mentioned on the previous podcast episode, published last month in February. He's a medical student, so he has a lot of knowledge in the space um, of uh, of many of the questions asked. So it was great to have him back on and to answer these questions and, of course, to, to hear the, uh, the race report of his. Um, we did have a couple of periods during this interview that the internet cut out on his end, but um, when I was going through to edit it, some parts were quite difficult to edit, and I actually left some of those bits that he cut out um, just very, very periodically, and it's it's quite easy to to sort of piece together and make make sense of what he's saying. But I do apologise for those bits that aren't one hundred percent clear. But uh, uh, having listened to it a few times since recording, 
um, more or less all of it's quite easy to to understand and to to absorb. So do keep in mind that this podcast episode was recorded in the second at the start of the second week of March, and at that point in time, the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games had not yet been postponed to 2021. So we do speak a little bit about his plans preparing for the Tokyo. Olympic Games in 2020, so that is uh, obviously no longer happening. So do keep it in mind that this podcast was recorded before that decision was made. And at the time of the recording, plans were for the Olympic Games to be happening this year. Thank you. That's about enough from me in this intro. I hope that you enjoy this podcast episode with Tice Nahurst shortly after he ran his personal best time in the marathon, Olympic qualifying standard of 210.57 at the Seville Marathon. Welcome to another Sweat Elite podcast episode I have on the call. Thanks so much for joining once again, Tice Nahost, uh, only a couple of weeks after your personal best of 210.57 at the Seville Marathon. Thanks. Yeah, it's, a, it's an honor to be on here again, and hopefully people could get an insight to what it looked like the last couple of weeks and the feelings I had after the race. Yeah, I think it was such a good idea to have you come back on after uh, the Seville Marathon result, which was an Olympic qualifying time, an automatic uh, Olympic qualifying time of 2.10.57, as we've already said, because the last podcast episode, if people want to check it out, you spoke uh, all about your training leading into Seville, um, and yeah. we published that just about a week or so before Seville, and it was I was actually personally really stoked to see you run so fast, because um, I'd obviously been watching your training pretty closely through Strava and just through conversations we've had. And I was uh, I was really quite happy to see that that time come out. And not only was it Olympic standard, it was also a sub to eleven, which is obviously a little added bonus there. But yeah, I think we can get straight into just talking all about how the race went down. Um, uh, you've got some some insides, some, some some stories that I actually didn't know about that that sort of occurred during the race. But I think we can start with maybe the day before the race, how you were feeling um, that last shakeout run, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, so I'll take it a little. A little before the last day, so yeah, sure. I did. I did a really good, like one week out. I did two by ten k at like thirty one minutes with one k jog in between both of them, and I felt great. But the problem was I got a, one foot started hurting a little bit. So last week I was in Spain, like an hour outside Seville, and it's it's really one of those things that you know you're in shape you get hurt. That's it's, it's really annoying, and I spend a lot of energy thinking about this. And the day before the review, picked up my bib number, nice hotel, went for a shakeout. I did 7K, and mm. I didn't really think about the pace. Like, I just flowed along and looked down at my watch, and I did like 345s. <laughs> I was like, wow. oh, but, yeah. but that's probably just um, like if that's what feels comfortable, I just flow with it. I don't think about like it's whatever. Like, I'm not going to try to run faster or slower, I'm just going to run. <laughs> Yeah, and but every every step hurt my plantar on my right foot, and I was like, "Oh, this is so annoying." I really hope it's gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things that you 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 feel some nickels before the race, and once you get into the race, you you feel fine. Luckily, yeah, that's happened to me a few times too. But just quickly, did you say that you first felt that in the two by ten k the week before? Yeah, like one week out, I did it. Yeah, in that session, I felt it like at the very end. I was like, ah, they'll probably be gone by tomorrow. But yeah. it didn't feel great the, the days after, though. But it was good. It was a down week that last week because you have to take off, and it got a little bit better just because it did less volume. Yeah. So you still felt a little bit in the day before in your shakeout run, but then 
yeah, well, it sounds like when you woke up, it was it. I mean, it probably didn't bother you too much once you got started. No, I did two strides the day before, and on the strides, that was the only time during the day it felt fine. It felt, it didn't feel great while walking or running, but the strides felt fine. I was like, all right, it's just a matter of not <laughs> not slowing down then. <laughs> so now, nah, but for the rest, I, I felt I felt good. I felt I I nailed the taper and. I was just really excited. I think that's the the feeling. That I, you're a little bit nervous, and but you know when you're in really good shape, it's awesome to race. Yeah, it's it's really fun. Absolutely. So that was the the night before, and then how was your? I guess let's even go into more detail about about the sleep the night before. I mean, this is something that actually I find pretty interesting because I was just in uh, in in Japan at the Lake Biwa Marathon where. Where a fellow Australian ran a time very similar to yours, he ran two ten forty eight. It was Liam Adams, and he, he. I was talking to him the day after the race, and he said he hardly slept the night before. He was he, he was pretty nervous, and he was obviously a bit of a combination of nervous and excited, kind of like what you're talking about. But um, how do you tend to go with sleep the night before the race, and more specifically, how was it before Seville? I actually, yeah, like earlier on in my racing career, I, I, last night was actually pretty terrible for me because I probably put a lot of pressure on myself. Now I know coming into the last night, I knew oh, if I sleep well the week prior to it, it doesn't matter what the last night's sleep is. And I think me knowing, oh, it doesn't matter what I sleep tonight, it actually makes me want to sleep better. Yeah. So I think <laughs> I, funny how that I, works. I, 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 didn't wo- I didn't wake up once. I woke up when my alarm went off at like five o'clock. So yeah, it was great. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true that I think that if you, if you have been sleeping for a for a lengthy period of time quite well, you know one or two nights where you don't sleep so well doesn't really seem to affect the physical performance. No, I, 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 well. I think all of I think all of us like sooner or later will have a bad night's sleep, or if people who have kids they'll get up three four times during the night, and even next day they will have a good session. So if that's possible, why shouldn't it shouldn't really matter the last night before a marathon either? Yeah, sure. Okay, so it sounded like that all uh, went to, went to plan, and then. I guess it'd be cool to know, you know, what what you had for the last meal or um, even the last maybe 24 hours before the race. Like what 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 you would prefer to consume in terms of in terms of food and fluid intake. Yeah, for, for uh, I mean, we drove to Seville because we were not like an hour outside of Seville, and for for I mean, I had just normal breakfast the day before, some oats and some milk and some some almonds and then for lunch I had a, a Caesar salad and pasta arabiata and a coffee and some bread and in the evening again some just some plain pasta really with some cheese and some a couple of vegetables I, I don't the carbo loading thing I do a little bit but I don't try to overeat at each meal because if you eat too much at one meal you can kind of feel a little bit sick so I just eat really normal the day before and try not to do too much different than I do at home. And then the morning of the race, I had two white toasts, with one with jam, one with Nutella, a pancake, a banana, a glass of apple juice, and a coffee. And I had yeah. a little sip, little sip of water, like just to rinse my mouth like 15, 20 minutes before the race, and that's about it. Yeah, okay. Do you do any maltodextrin loading beforehand that some... Nah. No, I don't. I, I I eat normally, and I I don't do any Morton drinking before either. That's the energy drink I go along with during the race. But I don't take anything prior. I don't take any gels or anything. So just very normal. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you, you you're at the race uh, start now. You've you've done your warm up. Can you feel any pain in the in the planter, or is there any other concerns before you start, or are you are you ready to go? Yeah, we we took we were sent to the start line by a bus, and we were at the start line an hour and fifteen before, which I think is a little bit long of a wait. I don't warm up too much. I think I went out thirty five minutes prior, just because I was bored, and I jogged uh, fifteen hundred meters. So about a mile, went to the toilet, changed shoes, ran another K and did two strides. And we were able to go out to the start line 10 minutes prior and the weather was really perfect. So, yeah, that's how my warm-up looked. And, yeah, you started to feel feel itchy and you, you kind of wanted to go. And the minutes were so slow that last three minutes on the start line, you kind of just want to run off. Yeah. And you knew before the gun went off that there was a... a, a fairly large group of people trying to run that Olympic qualifying standard of sub to 1130. Um, so I'm assuming your plan at this point was to, is to just really try and stick behind the pacer in the group there. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear more about you know, what you were thinking, what your game plan was beforehand. I mean, I, I know the answer to this, but people will probably love to hear it. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I already told myself the, the automatic qualifier for the Olympics was two eleven and a half. So, it somehow made it really easy for me to pick out what pace I should go at. There's, there's not anything considering going 212, or there's also not a point of going 210. Then it's, it was just go for the, this 211 to 211 and a half. Yeah. And I knew, like, I knew five, six guys that I trained with in Kenya and from other races and from Worlds that they were going the same pace. So I just kind of keyed up them in the beginning. And we had one pacer, which I don't think is a whole lot, but he's very, very talented Kenyan that. He did a phenomenal job. the the first The first five k was a little bit into a headwind, and he ran three o seven per k. The goal was three o six, but he ran three o seven, which is really nice that he don't that he didn't go out too hard. Yes. So it kind of got settled in, but then I reached that first bottle station, and we were like twenty five, thirty people in there, and the bottles were really close, and it was just. People stopped. People turned around and ran the opposite way. People were shoving each other. It, it, I came to a complete stop and got my bottle. The thing with my bottles was I had kind of predicted this was going to happen. So I'd taken my bottle and I put a Danish flag. I strapped that onto the bottle with like some sports tape. Right. And it had it had like a Danish flag on it. And that, w- that would go, I mean, the bottle are maybe like 25, 30 centimeters tall. And I would go another 30 centimeters up. So from afar, I could see where my bottle was at least. So I didn't have to worry about, like, where should I look for it? And I know a lot of the other people figure out, oh, that's Tyson's bottle. And I know my bottle is next to his. Perfect. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It, it, there's no doubt that would have been pretty chaotic at some of those early drink stations. But um, it sounded like... so. And you mentioned to me before the recording that you, you managed to get your two your first two drinks. But then you I had... Got- Trouble after that. Yeah, so I I had again I had predicted that this could be a problem, so I had taken one one Martin gel in my uh, in my pocket of my racing shorts, mm-hmm. just in case I would miss a bottle later on. I think missing a bottle, I missed my bottle at 15k, and it was it was not a big problem, but because I knew it was still in the early beginning of the race and I drank a lot the first two stations. 
And I got a, actually ended up getting a little bit from Henrik Pfeiffer, who also ran the Olympic qualifier from from Germany, who I trained with in Kenya. So it was it wasn't too bad, and I didn't end up using the the gel later on because okay. I got the rest of my bottles. But yeah, it came to a complete stop at five, at the five k mark, the ten k mark, at the twenty k mark, and the twenty five k mark, and then the rest of the way I I soloed from there. But we'll get into that. Yeah, sure. Did did you find it disruptive to your to your rhythm to have to to stop and and or, or what were you thinking at that point? Were you uh, bothered by it? Something it was just there's a lot of shoving around and people would speed up that last K towards the water, like bottle station and people were actually in line, but then you had one or two guys that were just, instead of go like talking into the line, they would just like run into us. And I know one guy from Turkey who had already the qualifier and his two mates were, were doing it. He ran in and he stopped at the table, took their bottles and ran up to them. But the problem is that when he stops there, there's no way that I can get my bottle because he stopped right at my table. So I had to run into him like twice. Mm-hmm. And I know there were some arguments going around. So right. that's the that's the downside of having a really large group because having a large group is really, really nice for the rest of the race. Yeah, uh, definitely pros and cons to that. Um, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Uh, okay, let's keep going. So 15K, you've missed your, you've missed your drink bottle. But at that point... Um, yeah, I mean, sorry, I don't want to tell your own story because before, before we jumped on this recording, you, you sort of shared this story. So, um, yeah, let's go from from that point, um, from 15K, you yeah. missed the model, and then, and then you had some issues moving forward from there. Yeah, we, we, we passed the first 10K 30 minutes and 50 seconds, a little faster than we wanted to, but, but it was fine because it, it was a tailwind from 5 to 10, and then we got some headwind again from from 10 to 15 because we did the, the – the 10 to 15 is the same as the 0 to 5, so we kind of knew there would be a tailwind there. Okay. And we got we got moving, and around, I could see we were on a good pace, 2.11. Pace was doing well. I wasn't feeling too great, honestly. And at 17K, I started to having a little bit of a stomach problem, and I just tried to be calm. And, okay, that goes away in five minutes. Just relax, stay in the group, and I faded back a little bit. And then at the 20K mark, I got my bottle, and drank a little bit and actually felt better again. I was like, oh, phew, emergency avoided. We can keep going. And yeah. then we passed the half in 65.23, and we're supposed to run 65.30. So, and that was a really such a confidence booster because I knew, okay, you run 65.23 now. You've, you're not feeling great, but 66.07, you, have a little, you, you can throw away a little bit of time in that second half. Yeah. And still make it. So just hang in there. And at this point, the group was getting smaller. People were were really starting to tire. I think at this point, we went from 30 at the beginning of the race to maybe 15, 16, 17 people. And a little after the halfway mark, the, the pace started speeding up, which resulted in that I was just hanging barely on in the back and just breathe. Like, I could just catch up every time there was a little move. I think that next couple of k's from like 22 to 25 we ran at nine minute flat on the for the 3k looking at the like taking the manual time my watch even at 850 so i was like oh this is a it's a little early for speeding up yeah do you have any idea why he did that i mean he was already halfway i mean it's that's i I, I don't know It, it could be that he thought oh we're 
he's getting closer to finishing his job and he saw there's a lot of people and maybe he just wanted to like sometimes when you're a pacer and if there's 20 people like 16 people on your back you can get you can it is easy to run a couple of k's faster yeah and uh yeah so i was just struggling a little bit there and and the stomach pains kind of turned like stomach pain like i really had to go to the toilet that it wasn't too much of a pain, but I really had to go to the toilet, and I was like, ah, oh, this is annoying. This is the second time. I tried to see if it would go away for a couple of minutes, just like the first time, but there was no way around it at this point. I think we're at 27K, and yeah, I had to do what, what you sometimes have to do. You have to make a decision. Is it you stay in your feet, you don't go to the toilet, or you go to the toilet and you hope? that it's going to help you because that's no guarantee you could get up and you're stiff as hell yeah yep so yeah just 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 to, to i actually had a look at the strava um the, the log from the marathon it was right around 27k because your pace drops to, to to zero kilometers per hour at that point for for a little bit of time so yeah you're right with the, it's right around 27 yeah 27 and a half or so i, I there was no time to me to look for a toilet or anything. I was just in the middle of the street. I didn't look around, and I still managed to run 15-15 for the 5K from 25 to 30. So, wow! But I missed. But I missed. I missed the. I mean, that 10K from 20 to 30, I ran 30-34 with a toilet break. Yeah. So how, how long also, do you, you was? How long do you think you were stationary for when you when you? Were no, in- no more than 10 seconds. Okay. Well played. If, if it takes longer <laughs> than that, that's that's then you're not uh, urgent enough. <laughs> it shouldn't take longer. If you if you use 30 minutes or 30 seconds, it's it's because you didn't have to go to the toilet that much. Yeah. This was urgent. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I missed, and that's uh, the unfortunate part is I got better, like, I felt better, that was a good part, and the unfortunate part was really I missed my group. Suddenly, yeah. a group of 15 guys that I could sit in behind, they were gone. Yeah, they're running uh, right around three minutes per kilometer, so they're, they're moving on quickly. But, yeah, let's keep going. So you've had to take that stop. Um, it sounds like it didn't, you know, coming coming straight off that stop when you got going again, it didn't sound like you had any sort of issues getting back up to that pace because, as you said, you ran that, that 5K in, what was it, 15-15, which is yeah, – <laughs> it doesn't even appear that the splits that you've even slowed down at all. No, no, it, it's kind of crazy. Of course, I got up and thought, okay, let's – don't – don't kill yourself by running all you can up to the group because once you get to the group and you try to relax, you'll die again because they were moving. So I was like, okay, just find, it's really important you find your own rhythm now, just like you did in the training where you feel comfortable. And I started clicking 303s pretty much and I could see that I didn't get closer to the group, but I also, it didn't run away from me. So they were just agonizingly 20 seconds ahead of me for the next three, four, five, six K or so. But I saw the 30 K split and I knew in my head that 33-30, that would be dead on Olympic target pace. That would be ex- like exactly 2.11.30. And I came through 55 seconds faster than that, like right. 1.32.36. And I knew, okay, this is going to be the toughest 12K of your life, but you have a golden opportunity that is pretty much now or never. If you, if you want to make this Olympics, you don't get a chance like this again. Yeah. So did you say your split at the – it could cut out just a little bit, but did you say your split at the 30K was 132? 132, 35 or so, I think. 
Yeah. Yeah. And huge, huge confidence booster knowing that you've got 55 seconds, which if, if you break that down to per kilometer, you know, you've got a good five second buffer per kilometer there. If you, like, if you start to yeah, a good, a, a good four seconds. Yeah. But, and I tried, I kept my rhythm and it, it felt fine up to 33 where we had to go into, it's called Plaza de España. It's pretty much you do a roundabout on cobblestones. And I was like, oh, this hurts my hamstring. And it was 9K to go and it started to get a little bit warmer. And I was like, oh, you can always run the last 3Ks really fast because with my track speed. But I was like, no, you're not going to try to waste time now. It's not something you have to make up later. Try to run another K at 3.07 or 3.08 or just at least under 3.10. That's kind of what I knew. If you can keep it under 3.10, you're go- you're good. Yeah, that's what I knew with like 8k to go, and even that got got really hard. And 35, I think my girlfriend stood at 34 or five, and that got me a little bit of like energy again. And she actually made a, a bracelet in Kenya at the Olympic corner. Like we all have those wristbands with a like Kenyan or our name, and she made one with the Danish flag on the one half and the Olympic rings on the other, and she gave it to <laughs> me. She gave it to me the day before. So when I saw her at 35, I was like, I didn't put it on though, because I didn't, I hadn't qualified yet. So I was like, when I saw her at 35, I was like, you have 7K to go. You want to put on that bracelet when you get back to the hotel. Isn't it funny how the little things like that can change your mood and your attitude mid-race of a marathon? Running, like, if you run, if you want to run a race where you get, where you're going to dig into your soul and where you're going to go really deep mentally, go run a marathon. Yeah. Like you can't think clear at 35 anymore. So that really motivated me for a KSO. And then my coach was there screaming at me and I was so tired that like, I told myself, you, you just run one more K one more K and at 38 or 37, I started seeing two or three of the guys at the front pack of like that pack I missed there. They, by the way, they ran away from me at this point because they were probably together. But I saw a couple of guys fall back, and I was like, "Okay, now you now you're gonna chase. Start to start chasing somebody, because that's a good motivation as well." Of course. And I knew on the last three, four k, I knew that there's just with a with a tailwind, so that really motivated. If I could get to 38 with a 38 and a half without being dead, like if I could de- could get there, I knew I was gonna make it home. You can always make it home with a little bit of a tailwind. Yeah. So that's one of those things you do the day before the race. Try to remember the map and on race day, remember where, where the wind, head and tailwind was, the first 20K. Also yeah. just to think about something else and try to put that into perspective for the last half just so you know when to expect you're going to yeah, expect something bad to happen. Yeah. Even though sure. there wasn't a lot of wind though. Okay. So at what, at what point in that last 10K were you – were you pretty sure that you were going to get the stand that you, that you were going to be under the standard? Was it because it sounded like you went through? I mean, much like most marathoners do in the last 10k, you went through a few cycles of thought with maybe a little bit of doubt at one point, and then you were positive again once you saw your girlfriend and the co- and, and your coach. But at what stage were you were you pretty pretty sure that you were going to get that standard? At around 37, uh, that, that's that's 5.2k to go. I looked down on my watch and it was like 156 and a half, I would say. 155, mm-hmm. 155 and a half or so. 155 and a half. And I knew, okay, 
So that's five minutes plus 11 minutes. That's about 17 minutes. Uh, like 17 minutes for 5.2K. I've done that in training like a million times. Just stay concentrated, stay focused. Don't do any wrong steps here now. Just keep going and keep pushing and just keep keep it rolling. Keep the ball rolling. Keep the <laughs> ball rolling. Yeah, it was it was kind of that was that that thing. Did did you feel like it helped you mentally to have those people drop off the pack in front of you and to and to and to pass? Was that something that was giving you some some sort of additional motivation towards the end there, or did you not really? Think oh, that? <laughs> definitely, that that helped me a lot. And I was like, keep looking at these persons ahead of you, and and just I could see I was getting closer, and that really motivates me. And I was, at the same time, I was still looking at my watch to make sure I was doing well and and that's the good thing i got gradually more and more tired those last 10k i felt like i was walking at the end like but i could see in my splits i only slowed down by like one or two or three seconds which is really motivating even though i felt more and more tired the splits didn't go to go to hell if i would have gotten a k that's really bad in there i don't know how i would have reacted to that so and then the last 2k you just try to to hammer all you can even though it's quite pathetic attempt of of hammering (laughs) it's interesting you say that i I don't want to change the the story to 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 me for any longer than 30 seconds but for for listeners i i ran a personal best in the marathon in in japan only a week a week ago and how you described that last 5k was very similar to what happened to me I, i felt like i was really slowing towards the end so my my goal pace for the marathon, I ended up running 224, and my goal pace was um, around 325 per kilometer. And I and I felt like I was walking in the last 5K, and my pace was only about four or five seconds per kilometer slower than the rest of the race. I only slowed to 328, 330, and I felt like I was going almost four minutes per K. And I, I, I spent a bit of time after the race thinking about why that was, like why I felt like the pace slowed so much and I was dying, but yet my pace didn't really slow that much. And I think when you just said that, it just reminded me, it sort of was a bit of a flashback to how that last three or four kilometers felt for me in Japan at, at, at the Lake Biwa Marathon it was. But um, yeah. I guess it just comes down to, 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 to probably a lot of training right around the goal marathon pace and, and just generally getting a bit stronger in, in, in training. Yeah, doing, doing, a lot of, doing a lot of repeats at goal pace and doing really long sessions and doing your long runs properly. If, this is what helps helps you at the end of a marathon the people who die at the end there they might look into especially the long ones i knew you did a i think you did a 40 42 or 45k as well right i did like a three four weeks out yeah yeah and and that's probably what made you tough and made, made it able for you to to maintain quite closely to the pace you you wanted even though you were tiring yeah yeah uh, it's it's interesting because yeah i i, I look through all of your splits and it it, it 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 didn't look like you slowed really at all as you said in that last in that last few kilometers even though you felt like you were really really fatiguing but uh, yeah um, let's I, sorry i could write like i could probably write like four or five hundred page long book about this <laughs> the, the monologue i had with myself those last 10k they were <laughs> extremely tough mentally as well and i think that's some of the reason I, I'm still pretty tired here three weeks after, but with 42k, was like when I saw that that straight away, I was like, ah, oh, this is nice. I see the finish, and I was I was saying to myself, you gotta enjoy. You you're gonna run an Olympic qualifier. Enjoy this. 
and then I saw, okay, 200 meters to go, you got 30 seconds, and then the track, the, the track guy in me came up and was like, you got to sprint now, you got to <laughs> pick up your laps, and you got to pump it all the way in now, you want to get under those 211, yeah. and I managed to get it to 1057, and I was so emotionally when I got over the finish line, and I know the guy who sat next to me in the bus, and I know a little bit Tudrik Nurme from Estonia, who made his second Olympics as well, running to 10.02. He came over to me, put his hands in my face, and just yelled at me, you're a freaking Olympian now. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that, and I just started tearing up. It's, it's something I've been thinking about since I was 12 years old, and a dream like this to come true, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, uh, as I said, I was also pretty stoked when I saw that. I actually first saw it on your Strava. I think that's the, uh, I think that even lo- loaded before the, uh, before the event website. But I was actually just about to ask you something that you kind of already half answered, and it was like, what, you know, you were probably forty-one k, forty, forty-one and a half k. You knew that you were going to run into the standard. I was going to ask, did part of you think, oh, hang on, I've got quite a bit of a buffer here. Should I, maybe should I just. <laughs> take my foot off the accelerator and just just run under the standard but you were probably also thinking hang on like i could go under 211 here which is a which is a bigger deal obviously like that that next barrier to break the sub 211 mark so you were probably thinking no like i'm gonna actually try and run 210 and i and i think and i think i can yeah yeah it's 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 such a weird like ambivalent feeling one on the one hand you just kind of want to jump and show the world everything and the other hand you're so tired that like just moving your legs is is close to impossible and there's so many feelings going through your body it's 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 really really strange and you probably have to do a long distance event and reaching your goal and maybe even even though i i believed i could do this you still got to do it it's it's not as easy as some of us make it sound sometimes yeah we struggle as well (laughs) yeah sure um, no, let's, I mean, let's keep going with where you were at where I guess we're almost, almost finished telling the sort of the mm. race day report, but you, you know, you've got the standard you've had, you know, you've, you've, you've got a little bit emotional after the finish, which I'm sure is, uh, is, is what most people would have also experienced that have just run the Olympic standard that haven't qualified for the Olympics before. Um, what did your coach have to say after the, after the race? Oh yeah. My coach was there and so and he didn't have an access to the elite tent and because after the finish I, I tried to see if I could see anybody couldn't I got into the elite tent pretty much just sat down and then suddenly I see my coach is like 60 and I see this guy with a little bit of gray hair running towards me and I knew it was my coach I get up and we're kind of like run into each other giving it a hug but just behind him, you see two security guards in like yellow vests chasing him, <laughs> <laughs> just because he went into an area where he's not, he didn't belong. And they're like, "Sir, you gotta get out of here!" And we're like jumping around and being so happy. And it's <laughs> it's his. I mean, it's he came agonizingly close to going to the Olympics himself. He ran 3:36.01 in the 1500, <laughs> and it was 3:36.00. He missed it by one hundredth of a second in the 1500. Like some 35 years ago so and us um so for finally for him to get like redemption over that and i'm gonna be his first olympian and well we're we're so excited by by then yeah that then, must be an enormous milestone for him he was on the other side of the fence and i just kind of want to go through the fence but i couldn't and <laughs> yeah it's it's fantastic it's it's 
it it means a lot having the support there and I'm really grateful for them to kind of sacrifice their their day and their time and them coming to Spain and supporting me. Yeah, as I said before, I just I've always found it well ever since I've started to run marathons, which hasn't been too long, admittedly, that um, it's amazing how much of a, of a difference it can make to just have someone there that you know show their face at the at the 35 or the 37k mark. It can it can make a huge difference with with the it, motivation. It, yeah, it really it's, does. It's a, and also afterwards, it's a good thing with once you've done a good race, you you want somebody to share it with. It's like creating a memory. Yes. And if you had a, there's somebody to pick you up, so you can't go by yourself. Like you won't go back to the hotel room by yourself and be sad. So it's it's really always bring somebody. That's that's the essence. <laughs> that's the lesson here. Two ten fifty seven, second fastest uh, Danish ever and you said it yeah. was the fastest game for how long 30 30 some 35 years did you say since 1988 so 32 years 32 and that years. was when Henrik Henry Jorgensen won the London Marathon so <laughs> yeah that's kind of crazy can't really believe what, it though what, what was his time uh, when he won London he ran 210.40 and his best time was actually Three years prior in 1985, and also in London, where he ran 209.43, which okay. is the Danish record. Okay, you'd have to think that's in your uh, your sights, given that Seville clearly was uh, was an uh, was an unbelievable race. You executed it very well, but a couple of things, you know, well at least that that stop that you had to take at 27. That's that's something where you can definitely find some additional time, and just having to run that that last 15 K or so completely on your own. That's, that's, that's far from ideal. So I think that <clears throat> I'm assuming that that time is probably still in your mind to, to try that, that record at least to, to try and break in the, in the, in maybe in the upcoming few years. Yeah, that should be a good motivator later on for right now. I think I executed close to perfect. And I mean, Seville is the flattest course marathon course in Europe. The weather when we started was eight degrees. We finished around 16 degrees and the group was there for a long time. And even when when they pulled away after my pit stop, I mean, they're still inside. So I still kind of use them for motivation for a long time. So I think nearly everything went close to perfect. But it's definitely, it's a good goal for coming up next year, maybe. Yeah. What I was about to say a little bit earlier, and you sort of just brought it up, is that, you know, it must be, I don't quite know the word to use here, but when you when you fell off the pack at 27, 27.5K to take the quick stop, you've gotten back up, and the pack is just that 20 seconds or so ahead of you. You know, when, when you see that distance, it's what, like about, about 100 metres, maybe slightly more. You know, one would think, oh, how hard is it to just to pick up the pace over a couple of kilometres to catch them? But then if you do the math, it's obvious, it's like, even over four kilometers to catch up 20 seconds, that's, that's having to, that's having to potentially increase. Well, it is increasing your pace from around three Oh five down to potentially under three minute Ks, which can really burn a lot of fuel. So <laughs> at around that pace. So it's, it's something that can't be easily. I, I mean, you can't very so simply and so easily catch up to that pack over, over a period of a couple of kilometers. If you, if you were actually planning on doing that, it probably would have had to have been something that you do over five or six kilometers so that you don't have to burn too much fuel and get close to that sort of anaerobic threshold point at that point in the race because that's the last thing you want to have to be really tiring at 30 32 so yeah, it's, fr- it's frustrating because they're so they're so close you can see them but you're yet so far away yeah mentally yeah. all right well that's um 
that's a it's an awesome race report. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and we've actually had quite a few questions come in from uh, from from listeners from the podcast to ask you. Uh, I guess there's been plenty of people very very impressed at the of the improvement that you've had in the marathon, considering you jumped from two fourteen eighteen personal best down to two ten fifty seven in one race. Uh, but of course, you you saw that coming and you knew that you were ready for that or a, a time around that mark. But um, yeah, we had six really good questions come through uh, to ask you about um, about your training and, and, and racing. I, the first one we can start with is, um, do you do any injury prevention exercises? Uh, because I believe that you haven't had any major issues, uh, at least in the last, you know, at least in the build up to Seville. So, yeah, is there anything that you do to prevent injuries in general? Yeah, so just a brief uh, indicator of like or like preview of my injury history. Knock on wood, I never had a stress fracture. I think that's due to me drinking really fat milk since I've been staying on a farm since I was a really young guy. My parents are a farm, dairy farmers, so okay. no. I, and I, I, I gradually increased my mileage since I was 14 by maybe like five or eight miles a week, like or like a week, like every year, like in, on average. So it's been a good long build up to towards this. The reason I changed to the marathon was actually because I was I wasn't completely injured, but I was like semi injured for all of 2017 and 2018 due to some groin area problems, and and it was it wasn't great to train on, and I didn't really get any better in the 5K, and that's why I switched. And I think the marathon training has actually helped me to get a little bit stronger, and I think my body reacts a little better to that because since I started doing the marathon. I haven't had any problems really, so I'm really grateful for that. And I do a couple of things. I don't, I don't go to the gym too often, even though I should. And if I go to the gym, I would never do anything with weights. It would be all kind of like, like dynamic stretching, and it would be a lot of like elastic band exercises, which you can also do at home if you buy some of those elastic bands that goes around your knees and around your ankles. You can do a couple of like glute activators, which take maybe less minutes, and you can do some some walks. Yeah, so it's called monster walks, and that's pretty much the only thing I do. And then once in a while, when I'm not too tired from doing too much mileage, I, the last two months before the marathon, I, I'm it's heavy training, and I can't get myself to do <laughs> these strength exercises I probably should. But running hills is also some kind of strength. But now after the marathon, I try to throw in some some core exercises and some some exercises for my back and for my stomach and or like abs and and try to get a little bit stronger again for my hamstrings and glutes. So that's something I really try to work on in the time after the marathon. Like starting from week three, the first two weeks, I take a lot of I take a lot off. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. I guess the next question was, um, you kind of already half answered it, but it was, do you do any strength work, plyometrics or lifting weights? But you mentioned that, um, you, you said that you should, but you, 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 I mean, I, I think it's pretty common for, for marathon runners that are doing the sort of work that you're doing to, to, to feel exactly that way that you just describe. And it's that, yeah, it's something that may help, but you're just, you, it's almost like you can't fit it in the week if you want to make sure all the running is done and all the quality training sessions are there that are done on, on your feet. So it's probably something you gotta. What we did, we tried to put it into periods. So when I got off the world championship in October 2019, 
I took three weeks off, and then I spent all of November, which is for like, and the first two weeks of December, so six weeks, I did some longer hill repeats, but also some sprints. And that's hill, running up a hill, that's my kind of strength work. Because that really, you really have to activate your glutes and your your quads and hamstring a little bit more. So, and so that's my kind of strength work and plyometrics right there. And and then obviously you got to be careful that you don't overcook it doing plyometrics when you're also doing a high high mileage. Yeah. In uh in Kenya you were you were d- doing quite a lot of short hill sprints after the easy runs as well. At least you were doing some when I was running with you. Mm, that's uh, is that true. I did. Is that something that you kept up when you went back to to Denmark? Uh, the last two weeks I, before the marathon, I didn't do it. But for the rest of the period, when I started doing like more miles and doing my specific session, I would do once a week. I would do eight by ten seconds hill sprints with a good long recovery. I would walk down, not jog or anything. Just take that minute or two at least. Just it's the reason we do these short hill sprints is for me to activate the neural neural system. If you do longer hill repeats with jog down, for example, it's more of a, a workup type of thing where you want to strengthen the muscles and tire them out because it's not tiring on your muscles doing 10 seconds with two-minute breaks, but it's really good way of like just getting the neurons to, to stay alert and, and stay ready especially because fatigue lags and you get fatigue from running, especially at altitude, running more than 200 Ks a week. It tends to decrease the neural activity. So this is a way of keeping your neural activity like, yeah, up to date, you, I would say, but yeah. without doing something that's too risky, running 10 seconds up a hill eight times. It's not, it's not overdoing it, which if I would run, for example, eight by 10 seconds flat, I could get, I'd run faster and it would potentially increase the injury risk. Yeah. Especially on the hamstrings. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, the next question, uh, quite a, quite a broad basic one, but did you make any major changes in the program leading into Seville? Did you, did you do anything differently? Did you add anything extra? Um, I guess the question is in, in response to, um, changing anything uh, in the leading lead up to Seville as opposed to lead up to Doha where you ran, um, sorry, uh, or Doha or, or, or the race that you ran your personal best 214-18, but did you do anything differently this time around in general? Uh, before, once you go into a new marathon cycle or after every marathon, you plan your next marathon. Like the, every time is, is different. You got to take into account, like I also have exams or people have works, work, and if you can't, you got you got to figure out a way of, of balancing these things. So I think I was more mature. I knew more about the marathon now, and I had a I had two good marathon cycles in my leg. Legs. So towards Doha, we knew it was going to be a long, fatiguing race, because there for at least 10, 15 minutes longer. We thought. So we did a lot of long runs, whereas for this race. We knew, okay, the goal is to run faster. It's like you gotta, you gotta be able to run. I mean, average pace 3:06, so we should probably run a lot of k's around three minutes. So we went a little 
and just because we can't fit in everything all the time, we dwind- we dwindled down the long runs a little bit this time to maybe 35k at the max instead of 40k. But we did more Ks at at threshold. I think speaking Kenya, I did 30k at threshold at like around three minutes, so five six seconds faster than marathon. So when I started doing the marathon specific stuff, the last three three and a half weeks prior to Seville, the three or five would feel easy. Yeah, and you did that and, huge session of um, three by seven k at right around that pace as well. Yeah, the. 7k at, at around 302 to 305 with yoga did 5x4k kind of same pace like just marathon pace i did 2x10k and, and i also did k tempo so it, these sessions the last four weeks really i felt a fre- i felt a little bit fresher every time and i got more and more into my rhythm so that's the point of like from eight weeks out to three weeks out I would push and I really tried to push it on doing a lot of miles and, and the speed. In the last three weeks, I tried to get more and more comfortable with the pace I had to run and get it economic at around 305, 306, 307. And the thing is, for a build-up like this, we had to take some risks once some risks once in a while if we wanted to make this. And the what do you say to you? You don't know what what like what is my hundred percent capacity in training. It, it's we don't know. No runners really do. And if, if you can get as close to those hundred percent without overdoing them, like I would say, if you can do ninety nine point five percent of your maximum capacity, you're good. But if you do one hundred and one percent, you might risk it being injured. But nobody can tell you where those hundred percent is. So. We took some risks and it luckily turned out well. But I also took some days off, just like one or two evenings in Kenya at the end, just because I had a hamstring that teared up a little bit. I can, I think you can find that on my my Strava at around uh, I think like 23rd, 24th of January. I took some days off and took it easy, just because sometimes you got to recover, then push the limit even more. Yeah, sure. Okay, next question was, do you take any supplements, uh, protein, vitamins, etc.? Is there anything that you that you tend to, yeah, that you favor in that regard? I do not really take any supplements at all. I have a very normal lifestyle uh, eating-wise. I eat normal food and I try to maybe like meat twice a week, chicken twice a week, fish twice a week, and then the last day vegetarian. And just getting some vegetables and getting the normal stuff, really. Nothing. Okay. When I'm in... Iron. Just because your body is making a lot of new red blood cells. And those red blood cells won't bind oxygen unless there is iron in them. So if you're iron depleted, you get more red blood cells. Which is the point. Yeah. So two or three weeks prior to... I read a couple of scientific studies around this symptom also like medical student and they say around two or three weeks prior to going to altitude you start with iron tablets and you take it all the way through and you take it at least a month after and i think for female runners i think it's that's the one thing you probably should take all year round 
just because they lose a little more blood than than the men do, and they get easily iron depleted. Sure. Okay. So, so they... iron only thing, no protein shakes, no protein bars. Very healthy living, just. <laughs> Awesome. Um, that actually segues pretty well into the one of the questions that was asked. Do you do any fasting? Um, I think, and and what what do you, what what they mean by that is, um, do you do you do any runs or long runs where you do, where you try to deplete your carb stores, carbohydrate stores during the run, and and try and teach your body how to utilize fat as an energy source at that sort of pace, or is that something that you yeah do you do any of that sort of training at all, or um, how do you what are your thoughts around that topic? Yeah, I don't do a lot of fasting on purpose, but when you, if you have dinner at seven o'clock at night, and I wake up in the morning, maybe let's say eight or nine, and I go for a long run in Kenya, uh, before I'm home and eating again, it would be eleven o'clock. So that pro- that'll give me probably like sixteen, seventeen hours between eating anything really, but that is not on purpose. It's just the how the day works out. Yeah, I have sure. done a, quite some long runs with the with the purpose of depleting myself and probably, and I would usually I would go, it depends. Sometimes I would depends on my schedule, what I'm doing, but if I go for a long run, a lot of the time, like from four weeks out and longer out, I would go for 35, 40 K on Sundays. And I would usually go without really taking any energy drinking. I just go on water. Mm-hmm. So I would either go before breakfast and sometimes I go three, four hours after breakfast. And then I do, two plus hours without having any energy during the run, just some water. So okay. it's, it's a good way of, cause it, 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 it's always the balance between cover as fast as possible for the day after, but you also want to enhance your fat burning system. So it's Correct. something you got to be careful about. If you know, you have a workout two days later in Kenya, for example, I had my long run on Sundays and I had a, I had a, tough session again on Tuesday so there I would probably try to eat a little bit and I've tried to drink drink throughout the right uh, throughout the long run sure. just because I knew I had to be recovered for afterwards for two days if I know that I'm doing a long run in Denmark on Sunday and I don't have a tough session till either Wednesday or Thursday I'll just go on water to enhance my fat burning system yep okay good answer uh, and the last question that I've decided to add in here, um, just, again, quite general, but it'd be good just to hear your opinion. Uh, the three most important aspects aspects of training for a marathon. I mean, let's say that someone relatively new to marathon running is, is sort of asking for your advice and, and they're trying to maybe discover what, what they're missing in their training. In your opinion, when someone's preparing for a marathon, um, what are the three most important aspects of the of the training that they should be including? The it really depends on where what where, where you come from, but just a, in very general speaking, I'd say building up your long run every week so you're able to be on your feet. It's I mean it's obviously harder if you run four hours for a marathon to do three and a half four hours trainings, but try to build as close to to the race time that you can. And nobody says you have to go at race pace. It could be if you want to race do the marathon in at five minutes per K, you can easily go out and do maybe 35 K at the end of a, getting closer to the marathon at six minutes per K. So a long run, but it doesn't have to be fast with marathon blocks. And 
just being able to be on your feet for a long time that's that's important the other thing is the second thing is like just being like continuous like continuously running a lot like it, you can run maybe you can run three good weeks but if you have three bad weeks after it doesn't really matter nobody cares how much you can run in one week nobody cares how good you are in one session I, I train a girl from, from my medical school I want to run and I want to improve my marathon time she's a 320 it was 3.43 by then and I was like okay if you train every month for five or six, three times a week I'm, I guarantee you, you will improve. And she actually, and the, it was a very straightforward because on Tuesday she, she, she did 10K. On Thursday she did 12K and the last 4K at marathon pace. And then on Sundays we would just build up her long run starting at 12K and then just adding one or two K every week. So she got up to 36K at the end. Not with any specific training in there. And she improved by like 20 minutes. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and she did. And, and then the time after she was like, oh, she's also going for the next marathon. We did the same thing pretty much again. We maybe the training on Thursday, we, we made a little bit longer. And for the long runs we put in, I put in like 30 to 40 minutes of marathon pace and she improved by 15 minutes again. And she got down to running 312 on three times a week for two years. So it's not necessarily you have to go out and do run every day. It's, if you can run three times or four times a week for like one or two years, you're going to improve and you're going to limit getting injured because yes. your body's not – if you're a new runner and you, you've been used to running like two or three times a week and going to five times, that's quite a lot. You should probably aim for – if you do like once, twice – the first year and then the second year you can do three times a week and maybe you can go up to four times a week the third year that's that's kind of the approach you should take to it and uh yeah number two okay do you have a third one yeah you don't have to because they've already been uh, a third one have a good race plan mm-hmm. i think uh, seeing the race course and trying to visualize and figure out okay when do I get fuel? What kind of fuel? And and practice those things prior. Like try to use gels in your training. Do you get up outside stomach? Yes or no? Could I change something or do it? Can I run three hours just by taking water? These. So have a plan for how to run the marathon. Like where do I stop and get water? Where do I take my energy? How do I get my energy? Do it? Does it come from the drink stations? Does it come from gels? It's it's very individual. And then I would say there, when you run a marathon, especially for the general public, you can't use too long at the energy station. It's if, if you need to take 20 seconds, if that's what it takes for you to to walk three, four, five steps and get the energy cup, get the energy down and keep going, it's worth it because the energy will help you later on in the race. Yeah, so even if you feel like you may, that, may not need it at that point in time, it's probably wise to take it anyway. Yeah, so that, that was a, that was a couple of advice. Like that was not like just a third like third advice or third tip. It was like it was a broad like it was a big tip really. It's <laughs> ha, ha, have a have a plan for how to race the marathon and spend enough time at the fluid stations, especially that, if it's warm. 
Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. <clears throat> and we actually briefly spoke about something before the recording that I think is a uh, Maybe it does relate to the last point that you just made, and it's that if you're aiming for a time, okay, this is a little bit away from um, the important aspects for training for a marathon, but it is something that I'd like to point out. If you're if you're aiming for a time uh, in in a marathon, so for example, you're aiming for sub three hours, um, watching your your pace and your splits on your GPS watch is not is not the best idea. Um, nope. Because actually, beforehand, <laughs> your GPS can easily be off by a couple of percent. And if you're following the splits on that thing and you're and you're not actually calculating in your own mind the five kilometer or the ten kilometer splits, um, the the real time splits in terms of what is the time, the overall time of the of, of the race at the ten k mark, you're simply just looking at your splits on your GPS. You, you can be in a position where you're a couple of kilometers to to go to at, at the end, and you're you're going to be a minute or two short um, because your GPS is actually showing you that you're running slightly faster than you really are. Um, because I don't know about you, that, but my GPS always shows that I've run about 500 meters longer than the actual race at the end. And that's not because the race is, that's not because the race is actually a, a long course. It's, it's that the GPS is out. No, um, the course, the course is always right. The, the GPS and electronics, they're, they're good devices and they help a lot and they can help you a lot in training as well. But you shouldn't solely trust on them. They're uh, there can be they're more of a guidance tool and a help than the official <laughs> the official timing. Yeah. So yeah, I have I kind of tend to say for for a 10k race, my watch is usually 100 meters longer. So if I do a 10k, if I run 10.1, I know it's a 10k. Yeah. If so, if I do a marathon, I know that's four times longer. So. I usually have 42.6 to 42.8 K and it's also because you're running in a city with, with big buildings. And sometimes you, when you take a turn, the GPS watch can't take the turn exactly and stuff like that. So don't think too much. You, what you can use is you can use them at the splits. Like you say, use the 5 K 10 K splits and don't look too much at the watch. It's much better in the first half of the race of a marathon that that you feel in a good rhythm and you find a group to, to run with where you feel at ease and where you get those fluids. Yeah. Great point. Okay. To, uh, to round up this, uh, this podcast episode, it'd be good to hear about your plans moving forward. I mean, you've obviously qualified for the Tokyo Olympics, fingers crossed that they go ahead. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because of this, uh, yeah, this whole coronavirus thing. I mean, I read an article yesterday saying that they have all, all intention of going ahead at this stage. So that's good news. But what um, what do you plan on doing moving forward? Uh, I do remember on the last podcast episode, you mentioned that you're going back to Kenya to do um, a, a period of time in a hospital there. But I couldn't recall if that's this year or if it was in, in, in a year ahead. No, you're right. I was going to go back last week. But after the Olympic qualifier in Seville, there's a lot of media that got interested in me and I had a lot of things to do that I had postponed to after the marathon and I decided not to go down there just due to me wanting to stay close to my friends and celebrating this because this is a big deal and I really wanted to take in the experience. It's a long time to the next marathon, so this is the time to do it. And I could see coronavirus moving out in China, and I didn't know how that was going to be. So I didn't really want to take the chances of going down there and being stuck. And 
Thank God for that at the moment, though, because uh, Denmark actually shut its borders today due to the coronavirus. Mm. So, uh, and they said everybody who's abroad should come home if they can. So it's 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 very drastic, and it's a it's a very strange time we're going now. Because I was going to do the world half, and and that was cancelled or postponed, I should say, till October. Such as and. Many marathons are the London Marathon, the Rotterdam Marathon, and so on, so on. There, most of them are either cancelled or postponed. And this coronavirus is is really over us. I I hope that we'll get get ahead of it at some point, and that everybody will be be all right. But right now, it's it's a scary time, and we'll see what happens. So I know. We can't leave the country either, so for the next month, I'm definitely stuck here, and I'll just use it as an incentive of training and just don't rush too much back into training. And I honestly don't know when I will be racing again. It's it's a strange feeling not knowing when to race, but I hope that the IOC, the Olympic Committee, will will wait another month before they make any calls about the Olympics in Tokyo. Because a lot can happen in a month. Well, a lot has happened in the last month, so yeah, you're, yeah. you're dead right. Um, if things do settle down, what would be your ideal scenario leading into Tokyo in the sense of racing? Um, would you pick uh, up on a certain period of time before the Olympic Games or a 10K, or what would you think? Let's let's assume. I mean, it's it's probably almost silly to assume that everything will calm down because it, it's very well may not. But let's assume in a perfect scenario that you could choose the races. What would you probably do? Uh, if I could do what I wanted to do, I would try to go over and run a 10k at the Peyton Jordan Invitational. But who knows whether whether they're they're cancelled as well. It's it would be in the beginning of May. Mm-hmm. But now I'm not going to the U. I wanted to do a training camp over there, but since we shut the borders, I'm not going to go. So I'll probably be looking at doing some 10k, like 10k track race, 10k on the road. We have the Danish champs on the first of June. Yeah. And a couple of 5Ks on the track just to – you don't lose something that you trained for many years. So I trained on the track and speed for a long, long time. And if I want to keep improving as a marathon runner, I should not forget that I need to train my speed once in a while. So I do I do some track workouts and I, I try to get quick again, try to do some 5Ks and maybe even try to improve my endurance is better. So I'll do some 5Ks and then from the middle of June, I'll – that's – Eight nine eight weeks out from Olympics, I'll start being more specific. I'll probably try to go on training camp to either northern of Italy, Sistria, Sandra again, or I will go to St. Moritz. Depends on what the Danish national team decides. <laughs> and then, yeah. Sorry, and, I was uh, laughing. Be... Actually, one of the questions that I I didn't I didn't add in here was uh, <laughs> that I'm going to bring it up now is um, someone just simply asked, "Are you going to beat Sandre Moen soon?" <laughs> I am not gonna be San, beat San Ramon unless we do a 400 or something. I, I actually, I actually think I can take him up to a 1500. The guy is not quick, and that's not the. It, that makes it even more impressive because he doesn't have the speed that a lot of some of the other guys have. Like you see, Philip Flieger, who has an amazing 1500 and 3k and 5k PBs, and I do have decent PBs in those events as well. And Sandra obviously in the five K is good and the three K is also, but his, I think his fifteen hundred PB is three forty eight or something. So it just shows that 
you don't have to be extremely quick to run long distance. It's a matter of how good you are at running at a, at a certain pace and how good your endurance is. Now, and I don't think I'm, I don't think Sandra is running any 1500 meters soon. So now nah, I probably won't beat him. The guy is really good. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> Sorry for changing the topic. So, yeah, you'll no, likely go down and train with him in northern Italy if that all works out. Yeah, we'll see. Italy is one of the countries that are uh, that are really unfortunate, struck really hard by the corona. So, it's. But I'll probably try to get a altitude stint in, like, end of June and then first two or three weeks of July and then head out to do the opening ceremony, stay in Tokyo, get the Olympic feeling for a couple of days. And then 10, 12 days prior to the race, I'm going to try to find a spot where where the weather is as similar to Sapporo as possible. So Sapporo will be probably be around 20 degrees. So I'm not going to train in 40 degrees. I'm trying to simulate it. As, as, it has to be as similar as possible. There's no point of training in 40 degrees if you run in 20 and vice versa. Yeah. And then I will so, go back and I'll go back and do the European champs. Three weeks oh, later. Yeah. That's going to be interesting. Is it, it's three weeks later, did you say? Yeah, three weeks after the marathon, it's the European Champs in Paris, and I will do a half marathon there. So. Now I can't actually hear you. No, I said, uh, do you hear me? Uh, I can now. I couldn't hear you for about 15 seconds at all there. I, I, no, I heard you all the way up. You said European Champs a few weeks later. Yeah, so three weeks after the Olympic marathon, there'll be the European Championship, and there'll be a half marathon in Paris. I know it's, it's it's close to the marathon and it's a little bit of a risk, but I'll, it's a European championship. I have nothing to lose after going to the Olympics. So I think I can perform well as long as I take it slowly the first 10 days after the marathon. So yeah, should be the icing on the cake. Yeah, that will be actually really interesting to see how you perform at that um, three weeks afterwards. Uh, because yeah, you're obviously forced to take at least a week there pretty easy, but um just the, the training effect of that marathon itself is obviously so, so strong. So, um, yeah, that'll be really interesting to see. But, all, uh, about, all about super compensating. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, awesome. This was a really good, uh, really good race report and really appreciate answering the questions. Um, and there's no doubt that we'll catch up again on the podcast at some point soon, maybe just before the Olympics or just after it. Uh, Appreciate your time again, Titan. I hope that uh, this whole coronavirus thing hasn't been uh, affecting any training of any sort up there, because I'm aware that uh, it's uh, it's there's pretty drastic measures put into place up there in in Denmark. Yeah, I, I can still train at the moment. Uh, I'm not surrounded by too many people. I won't see too many people, and I'll, I'll I'll keep training in the forest by myself at the the west coast, which is really remote. And thanks for having me on again, and thanks for all the listeners that made it to this point. You've done well. <laughs> awesome appreciate it Tice let's catch up again soon see you